0: Isaiah 53 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we all like sheep have gone astray. And we have not innocently wandered off the path. We have defiantly and rebelliously turned our backs on you. And we deserve death and hell. But in your mercy you have sent your son Jesus. He has suffered in our place. He has risen in victory so that we can have forgiveness and eternal life and hope in him. So, Lord, I pray that you would bless this time that we have together in the book of First Corinthians. Open our eyes and help us see wonderful things out of your law. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, my friends, welcome back to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how every page points us to Jesus, who he is and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thanks for joining me. So today, we're going to begin an examination of the book of 1 Corinthians. And I think it's wise, before we dive into our first theme in just a moment, just to set the scene for what's going on in this book, why was this book written, because that's always helpful information to have whenever you're investigating a particular passage. So let's get our bearings in 1 Corinthians. The first question we want to ask is, who? Who wrote this letter? What's from Paul? And as I have said before, and I will pretty much keep this brief, I'm going to always act as if the person whose name is on the letter wrote the letter. So there are people out there who would say that it's not written by Paul. but As far as this podcast is concerned, it's written by Paul. Who did he write it to? He wrote it to the church in Corinth, a city located in southern Greece, a very wealthy port city. When did he write this? He wrote it in the spring of 54 or 55 AD, likely during his third missionary journey. Where was Paul when he wrote this? He was in Ephesus when he wrote this letter. And we know that because he says in 1 Corinthians 16, I will stay at Ephesus until Pentecost. The big question we want to ask that gives us so much help in interpreting a passage of Scripture is asking the question, why? Why did Paul write this letter? And there are three reasons that jump out to our attention as to why the letter of 1 Corinthians was written. The first is to clarify a previous letter that he had written to the church. Now, this is very confusing for us, uh, but Paul wrote, so far as we know, four letters to the church at Corinth. Letter number one, we don't have. Letter number two, we do have, and we call it First Corinthians. Letter number three is what Paul call, calls a tearful letter, and we don't have that letter. And then letter number four is Second Corinthians. So four letters, we have numbers two and four, and we call those 1st and 2nd Corinthians. I know, very confusing. But Paul needs to write this letter, this second letter, 1st Corinthians, to clarify the previous letter. It seems that in this previous letter, Paul had told the church not to associate with a sexually immoral person, and the church at Corinth took that to think that Paul meant non-Christians, like a a non-Christian, sexually immoral person. But Paul meant people within the church who were sexually immoral. So in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, where is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one? For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So that's the first reason to clarify the previous letter. The second reason to respond to reports about problems in the church. And there are three big problems in the church at Corinth. The first is factions. People are dividing over their preferred leaders and teachers. Some people are hashtag Team Peter. Other people are supporting Paul. Other people like this guy of Apollos. And then you got some people dropping in super spiritual being like, well, I follow Jesus. And the result is you have all of these divisions and factions in the church. The second problem, the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians 11:17 17 through 22. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be, may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Like, whatever the church of Corinth wants to call it, it ain't the Lord's Supper that's happening when they get together. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And I assure you, my friends, we're going to dive into all of these issues at at greater depth in future episodes. But know that there's a problem going on in the Lord's Supper. And the third problem, and maybe the biggest problem, is there are teachers infiltrating the church who are denying the resurrection. And this is going to lead Paul to write, 1 Corinthians 15, explaining the significance and the importance of the resurrection for our faith. So Paul needs to clarify a previous letter. He needs to respond to some problems. And the third reason, maybe the simplest reason of all to write a letter, to reply to a letter that the Corinthians had sent him. Several times throughout this letter, uh, you're going to see Paul say something like, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, your editors help you, they put quotation marks. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So what we have here is the church at Corinth has written back to Paul with questions or sort of comments, and Paul is writing back to them and responding to what they have said. Now, we're listening to half of a conversation, but it's helpful to understand that they're actually speaking back to Paul, and Paul is answering them. So, That's kind of getting our bearings in this letter. Now let's dive in and let's look at this first theme in the rest of our time today. And that is the theme of the mystery of the cross. Now, with the exception of Ephesians, no other book in the New Testament employs the term mystery more than this book. It's used six times and it's found in some very key passages. And it plays this term mystery plays a big role in expressing the purpose of this book. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 and 7, Paul says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the mystery of God with lofty speech and wisdom. And then in verse 7, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom, mystery of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. 1 Corinthians 4, 1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So Paul says every true teacher, every true apostle, is a steward of the mystery of God. Now, I'm just going to stop you right here because I understand that when I say mystery, what almost every single one of us thinks of is Scooby-Doo, right? Just a couple of teenagers driving around in a van with a very large, smart dog and solving mysteries. Usually at some kind of haunted amusement park and we're putting together clues and at the end, ta-da! What do you know? It was the janitor all along. Or maybe you're thinking of something like a puzzle where you have all of these pieces out on the table and you are assembling all the pieces and you're thinking really hard and you're studying it really diligently and you are putting it together. And I know why you think that because that's how we most often use that word today. But that is not what the Bible means. That is not what Paul means when he says mystery. So what does mystery mean? Well, the term mystery in the Bible... Sort of gets its start in the book of Daniel, especially chapters 2 and 4. Now, in Daniel, mystery, a mystery of God, concerns God's end time kingdom and related events. So there's another term, end time. For most of us, when I say end time, you start thinking of something not yet off in the future, right? Like the time, you know, the months before Jesus comes back. But biblically speaking, everyone who lives on this side of Pentecost, which if you're listening to me is you, We are living in the end times. So mystery in the Bible concerns right now God's end time kingdom and the events related to it. So here's a good definition for you. Mystery is a disclosure of divine wisdom. Mystery is a disclosure of knowledge that was largely hidden, but has now been revealed. But here's the important thing. We don't do the revealing. God does the revealing. So the way we often use mystery, I'll just say this one more time. The way we often use mystery, I think a puzzle is really helpful for us. Right? We think of a mystery as something that we assemble together using clues and, and these pieces and our own smarts. But instead, imagine imagine if you went into a room and there was a large object in the middle of the room and it was covered by a sheet. You can see that something's there, but you have no idea. And so you sit down and you wait and someone comes into the room and they grab a sheet and they pull it back and they unveil something. That's a mystery in the Bible. God is the one who does the revealing. Now, Daniel chapter two is a famous story. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has had a dream and he tells the wise men that they have to interpret it. He's not even going to tell them a dream. They, of course, say that's impossible. And he says, well, then you're all going to die. And that includes Daniel and his friends who are also sort of in the wise men guild. Daniel asks for a chance to solve Nebuchadnezzar's problem. And so he and his friends get together and they pray and God gives them the interpretation. It says in Daniel two twenty through 23, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Now, the king's matter is about God's end time kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar sees this golden statue that has different levels and different materials, and he sees this rock rolling down and shattering it, and then the rock becomes a kingdom that fills the whole world. This is God's end time kingdom. The mystery revealed is God's end time kingdom. Now, in the New Testament, this term mystery is applied to a number of themes. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God being part of a mystery. He says to his disciples, you have been given the secrets, the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. The crucifixion, Paul refers to as a mystery of God. It's what he proclaims. The resurrection, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, is a mystery. Christ's cosmic rule is a mystery. Even the nature of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, Paul talks about the mystery of lawlessness. This is the Antichrist. Another prominent theme given the term mystery is the relationship between Jew and Gentile. Now, what we want to look at in our time is why mystery is applied to the crucifixion in 1 Corinthians 2. Why does Paul sum up what he says in his sermons as proclaiming the mystery of God when Paul is preaching Christ crucified? Why is that called the mystery? Now, according to the Old Testament, above all else, The Messiah is going to be the king of Israel. The Lord promises to restore his people to their former glory. He promises to reign over his people through his Messiah, his anointed one. And maybe the, not exactly the origin, but perhaps one of the starting points of this Promise, this expectation is 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. God says to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so, for the rest of the Old Testament, the rest of the book of Samuel and Kings and the prophets, we're tracing this theme, this promise, and its fulfillment. The Messiah, as we learn in the prophets, is going to be a descendant of David, and he's going to be instrumental in bringing about the establishment of God's eternal kingdom and the destruction of Israel's enemy. And one of the things the Messiah is said to do, or perhaps another way of saying that would be the way the Messiah is going to establish God's kingdom and destroy his enemies is to bring about a second exodus. I mean, think about it. The historical kingdom of Israel was established through the exodus, They were brought out of of Egypt as a slave people, and they were made a nation, a nation of priests. And in the Exodus, Pharaoh and his armies were destroyed. So this paradigmatic event is now going to be used as an example, as an expectation of what the Messiah will do in the future. And when this Messiah brings about the new Exodus, the prophets, if you look at all the prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah and the, the minor prophets, they say that when the new Exodus happens, when God's kingdom is established, Our sins will be forgiven, the Spirit will be poured out, and the new creation will begin. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, the the broad sweep of passages relating to the Messiah in the Old Testament, a few of them do seem to hint that the Messiah would suffer, but this suffering, it wasn't really viewed as a major part of his ministry. But what we can see on this side of the cross, as we look back at the Old Testament, through the cross of Christ, is that messianic suffering is not just a thing that you know is also a part of the messiah's ministry messianic suffering is the means by which god will restore his people and this goes all the way back to genesis 3:15 they're in the garden right after sin broke our world and death comes into the world God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there is from the very beginning of God's plan of redemption an expectation that the Messiah's victory, and that's who this verse is about, is the Messiah. It's about Jesus, will only come through his suffering. In Isaiah 53, 5, Isaiah, speaking of the servant, says that he, the servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Now, on this side of the cross, we often think, how could the Jews miss it? How could they miss that Jesus was the Messiah? How could the apostles miss it? But understand that apart from the Holy Spirit, we would be just as confused as they were. Because the Jews read their Old Testament, and they saw the talks of this messianic king putting his foot on the necks of God's enemies and being given the nations to rule over And then they read Isaiah's promise of a suffering servant, and they didn't see how that could possibly be the same person. And so they just thought, well, this must be two people. There's no way. How can he have his foot on the necks of of his enemies and also be despised and rejected by men? That can't be the same person. But it is. And this is why Paul calls the cross of Christ the mystery of God. It is something that no human being would have understood. It is something that no human wisdom could have found out or pieced together the clues. It is something that God has revealed to us for his glory. And the mystery of God is the exalted, kingly, divine Messiah affixed to the cross. And Paul says when Jesus is suffering a shameful death on the cross, he's actually being enthroned as king over the universe, First Corinthians two eight. None of the rulers of this age, not Pilate, not Herod, not the Sanhedrin, none of them understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So we can be honest, and we can admit that messianic suffering doesn't play a central role in the Old Testament. It's there. It's absolutely there. Psalm twenty two, Zechariah chapter fourteen, Isaiah fifty two and fifty three. But it's not the central emphasis. Worldly wisdom would never conceive that the Messiah could be crucified, much less display his glorious divine power while being killed. This understanding, a true understanding of the Messiah, has to be revealed by divine wisdom. And this understanding of the Messiah as the triumphant victor nailed to the cross displays the truth at the heart of God's kingdom. And that is before the crown comes the cross. And brothers and sisters, if that was true for Jesus, it's true for us. There is no crown without a cross. So this is the mystery of God, the King of the universe nailed to a cross for our sins, victorious while he dies. So when we come together next time, we're gonna talk more about what it means to preach Christ crucified. But for now, take up and read. God bless, my friends.